I will hear stories from other families about really, really difficult issues. So having that time to run and having that time either to really process the information or conversely, just to not think for a little bit, I think is really important. Hello and welcome to Run the Business, the podcast that explores the place where running and leadership come together. We'll find out how running can help us with leading, managing people and generally being better in business. We'll also try and answer that question, do runners make better leaders? I'm Anthony Gay and today I'm joined by Caroline Coates. She founded the charity Harry's Hat in 2018 with her husband Matt following the birth of their son Harry who has congenital hydrocephalus. She's worked in the charity sector as a fundraising manager for charities such as Beating Bowel Cancer and Women's Aid for many years as well. Caroline Coates, welcome to Run the Business. Thank you. Caroline, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Really good at this time of year. I, I kind of uh, give a few things up in January just just to see how it goes. And it, it always makes me feel a, a little bit better. Are you a, a New Year's resolution type person or uh, do you just crack on? No, I've got four children, so I've given up making any sort of new resolution. <laughs> just, I just try and crack on with it, to be honest. Now, you've just taken over the CEO position, haven't you? Uh, I know you've been running Harry's Hat for uh, for a few years now, but you must be our newest CEO on the podcast. Yes, I've been running the charity as a founder since 2018 in a voluntary capacity. Um, but the charity's grown really quickly. Um, we've been lucky enough to get, to get funding to take on some key roles. And um, we've also decided that we really need a CEO in post to, to bring it to the next level. So here I am. Fantastic. Uh, well, c- congratulations on that role. Let's go back a little bit and, and tell us what hydrocephalus is for anybody who doesn't know and, and what the charity is. Tell us how Harry is as well. So um, Harry is my fourth child. He was diagnosed with hydrocephalus in 2017, in utero actually. So we were very one of the few very lucky people really that um, we knew what, what was coming before he was born. But when he was born, we kind of really struggled to, it, it, it's a really difficult thing to manage because it's a life-threatening condition. Yet looking at Harry, you wouldn't know that there's anything wrong with him. Hydrocephalus used to be called water on the brain, but effectively it's a buildup of too much CSF fluid. And most people with hydrocephalus have a shunt which drains the fluid from their brain and effectively keeps them alive. And and what impact does that have on on uh, people who have it? What impact does it have on their lives? What day to day? What does what does that mean? Well, this is a really difficult question. The impact is huge and vast, depending on what caused the hydrocephalus in the first place, and also how the child or the individual has has reacted to it. So, if you were to look at Harry's brain scans on paper, he shouldn't be able to do very much at all. Really, he's an active little boy, albeit with a shunt in his brain that could block at any time, meaning that he needs further neurosurgery. It's it's quite a difficult condition to manage as a parent because the, the shunt effectively keeps them alive. It, it, it keeps draining the fluid from their brain and stops the pressure on their brain uh, building up, which is what happens if you get too much fluid. But you know, if it blocks, it's a life-threatening emergency in most cases, needing urgent neurosurgery. So living with that is a real challenge. 
Uh, and you mentioned the shunt. Tell, tell you know, tell me what that what 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 that is. So the shunt is inserted into the brain, and it drains the excess fluid. Now it discharges into different areas depending on the individual's needs and what's caused the hydrocephalus in the first place. But in our little boy's uh, case, it goes from his brain and discharges into his tummy. Okay, and. How is Harry now? I mean, how old is he now? He must be, uh, is he five? He's five. He's yeah. just started uh, infant school. He loves it. He's a full-on five-year-old, albeit with older siblings. So he knows all the things he shouldn't know. Um, he gets up to lots of mischief. He's a very happy, I'd say, handsome little boy. Fantastic. And what made you, because the charity came in 2018, what drove you to, to want to set the charity up? What, what was the catalyst for that? Well, I've always worked in the voluntary sector in quite senior roles. I'd say I've got quite a lot of contacts in the sector and I know a thing or two about fundraising. In fact, a few years ago, I was awarded Fundraiser of the Year for some of my work. So I talked to the neurosurgical nurses, which is the nurses that look after children with a condition that were treating Harry. And one of the things that they highlighted is how difficult it can be sometimes to access training and in my very sort of simplistic mind I was like well if they can't access the training they want how are they going to help Harry and I want nurses in one area of the country to be able to talk to others so that best practice and not obviously improve the the um, outcome for children like my own son and so to start off with we just thought we were going to raise a bit of money for Harry's neuro nurses to access some training we set up an Instagram uh, handle and you will never now forget the, the charity because you can obviously see that marketing wasn't our strong point because it's Harry's Hydrocephalus Awareness Trust. So if you look at the hashtag, you'll see we managed to set up a charity called Harry's Shack. That said, we got parents from all over the UK contacting us really, sharing their stories, telling us how isolated they feel as well. And very quickly, we sort of formed a community and then the charity was born. We, we, you know, from thinking that we were literally just going to fund a little bit of training to now we raise awareness, we fund nurses all across the UK, as well as other people working in the field so they can learn more about the condition. And we also provide peer-to-peer -peer and family support for other families' journey, going through the same journey. And then we found that there were families coming to us where the children had delayed a diagnosis. And when you looked back at the pictures of the children, it was very obvious that they had a big head and they needed further investigation as a big head is one of the signs of the condition. And one of the ways that this can be picked up is through routine head circumference measurement. Now, when you have your baby, you go along to the clinic, they measure the head. Well, that's not happening as much as it used to be. And in fact, in some cases, they're doing virtual head circumference measurement or it's not happening at all. And so we realised that what we want to do is equip all new parents when they leave hospital, they're aware that measuring a baby's head isn't just a nice to do, it actually can be an indicator of an under underlying life-threatening condition. And then we feel if all parents knew that, then they'd be really keen to make sure their baby's head gets measured. So we set up the Get a, Get a Head campaign as well. So the charity, as you can see, it's grown very holistically, but... We are where we are now. And how, in terms of the fundraising, how, how what sort of things do you do? And we're going to talk about your running uh, shortly as well, but what, what other stuff do you do to raise money? Well, I had a history in 
raising funds from grant making trusts and foundations. So we we do we get funding from the National Lottery. We've got funding from Globals Make Some Noise, which meant that Harry and I went on Heart Radio a few times and. Actually, that was a really lovely experience because not only were we talking to Jamie and Amanda about the, the charity and, and what we wanted to do, but also we, got, we were contacted then through our social media platforms, people hearing me talk about hydrocephalus when their own children have the condition and saying that that's the first time they've heard people talking about it in the media. So we've worked with some quite high profile organisations who've supported us and got behind us as well. And what, uh, as CEO of the, the charity, you know, what's your day, day to day look like? I know you've taken this on full time now. So what sort of stuff do you do? You do? It, everything. CEO sounds like a very grand title, but I do everything through from the administration to managing our families together coordinator, who is the lady who looks after all of our families and helps match families going through a similar journey. I work with our freelancers, help with our marketing and our PR, because that's a really important part of the work. I work with our research lead who looks at all the sort of things that we're doing, because one of the things that we're really keen to do is improve the patient pathway. So at the moment, we're looking at how we can improve the speed of which a child presenting in shunt malfunction gets treated at a specialist neurosurgical unit. We spearhead the campaign and I spend a lot of my time speaking to families going through the same journey. I would think that's the bulk of my work. And, and what sort of awareness is there at the moment? Because I'll be honest, until you know, we set this conversation up, I, I knew, knew nothing about you know, what it was. You know, what's the knowledge out there at the moment? Very little. And that's what has pushed us to do more. There's an, an organisation called the Hydrocephalus Association, which is based in the US. So we use a lot of their statistical information because there isn't as much in the UK at the moment. And they will tell you that one in every 770 babies will go on to develop the condition. Now, either that's genital, so from birth, or it'll be a result of often children who are born very prematurely can go on and develop it as well. But if you think that one in about 770 babies each year that makes it as common as Down syndrome, yet very few people have heard of it. So there's us and there's another brilliant charity in the UK and a few other sort of support groups that help people with hydrocephalus. But given the scale of it, there's very few organisations. So, you know, I think we're all working together to, to really try and wear, raise awareness of the condition and how it impacts on we, our focus is just on paediatric hydrocephalus, but obviously it's a lifelong condition. So we'd, we're raising awareness of, you know, the sort of struggles that people with it have and, and how to help them and how to be more inclusive. And those struggles, that they continue throughout life? Absolutely. I mean, Harry can be really well and then his shunt could block halfway through the day and that's a life-threatening emergency. He also, we also need to be careful about him in his particular case, getting a, a direct hit to the hip head or his tummy because his shunt discharges into the tummy. Other children's might discharge into their heart. So, you know, and that can block the shunt as well. So we need to be careful about that. People with the condition need to drink regularly throughout the day. So we're doing a lot of awareness work with schools. And we've written a book called Hydrocephalus, What I Wish I'd Known. And it's basically, do you remember the book 
pregnancy for dummies and things like that. Well, yep. there was nothing like that when Harry came along. So we've written one and it's got lots of family stories in and lots of top tips. And it's got lots of information that you would need when you're navigating the journey, including silly things like, I would say I'm, I'm quite an educated lady, but I didn't know that surgeons in the UK go by Mr. Miss or Mrs. So when somebody, the first person to operate on my child, I was like, why is a consultant not operating on my baby? Not realizing how senior they were. And it's all those different questions that at the time you don't feel confident to ask, but we're we tried to explain it a bit more in the book. Caroline, you're doing awesome work. So well done for, for the things that, that you've done since 2017 and the difference that you've made. Charity work and running. This, this podcast is, is about the relationship between business and running. There is something special, isn't there, about charity work and, and running because it's something that everybody can, can do and, and they're so entwined. Why, why do you think that is? I think the running I run regularly now, it gives me that chance to have a bit of downtime. I'm a mum of four as well, so that, that, that's my, my time. It also gives me a chance to think through issues. If, if we're thinking about a particular problem, and sometimes we come across families where, where the situation is really difficult. And as a founder of a user-led organisation, so I'm going through it myself, I will hear stories from other families about really, really difficult issues. And obviously I'm relating that to my own journey as well. So having that time to run and having that time either to really process the information or conversely, just to not think for a little bit, I think is really important. And where do you go running? You know, what, what sort of, because I, I, I want to talk about your, you've got a London event coming up later this year, haven't you? So, so what's your, your current sort of running route? What's your training? How do you fit it in amongst everything else that you're doing? So I run with a lovely team of people, um, including a lady who she won't mind me saying has hydrocephalus herself. And my friend is profoundly deaf. And that has been a really lovely experience, really, because when we started running together, I can't sign. I'm trying to learn to but I can't. So I used to try and sort of fill in the gaps by sort of doing big gestures. Now we enjoy the piece ourselves and we just run along together in silence. But it, we've learned our own way of communicating to each other. We've entered lots of competitions together and we're up to comfortably-ish about 10k. And we, li we live in the Hampshire countryside, so it's beautiful as well. So we, we go some, to some really nice places where it's nice to look around and, and enjoy the, you know, the sights and things. And you've got a half marathon coming up later this year, haven't you? Yes. How are you feeling about that? We're doing the London Landmarks, which we're very much looking forward to. I did the Great South Run last year, so 10 miles is the furthest I've run. Um, so this London half marathon will be my personal challenge. We talked about the relationship between running and, and, and charity work. I'm interested in how charities, it just feels like uh, the two go hand in hand. The, the fact that people can get out there and do something and make a difference and raise some money for a cause. Uh, it's such a huge thing when you look at things like the London Marathon and the New York Marathon and, and so on and, and how much money is raised at these events. Why do you think that is? 
I think there's an expectation that you're going to join it and you're going to raise money for a good cause. It's a safe opportunity for people to say, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get fit. And this is my challenge. Um, I think also platforms like Just Giving has made the fundraising much easier. So whereas before we all, you know, when we were kids and I'm showing my age, we used to have a sort of paper sponsorship form and go around and knock on the neighbours. Now you can put your Just Giving page out or whatever. And people all across the world that know you can get behind it. And actually, that's great. But that also, if it's just the people like in your neighborhood that have sponsored you on your little paper sponsorship form, you can sort of get out of it. But when everybody you know has put in some money, you know, you're sort of committed. And I think social media has helped, actually, because I think you're then sharing your challenge, you're sharing your why. And it gives people the chance to, to, to tell their story. We get people running for Harry's Hat right across the UK and they will share really personal stories about why they're doing it and often their children's journeys, you know, what's, where things have gone really well, where, where they've had horrendous challenges to overcome. And those, those pages are so beautifully written and often you'll see people comment and they were like, crikey, I had no idea, mate. Yeah, here you are. I'm, I'm giving you 50 quid. And again, I think, you know, running is just such an easy thing to do. You put on your trainers and you go. You don't have to have a load of equipment. You don't have to you know, join the gym and, and face all the people. I'm certainly not, you know, I, I'm a middle-aged lady so so you know I, I'm not a sort of traditional sports person as such but I feel very comfortable out running. I think what you said there is really interesting around the the way the digital tools that we all have and social media it takes a lot of stick and and is knocked a lot and you know in many cases can be an unhealthy thing but for charity and for sharing stories and for community there are huge positives, aren't there, that have come, as you've just described, that have come out of that digital ability for people to connect, uh, to, to give and to share stories. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, our charity, for example, would not have grown the speed it's grown without social media. That said, I think we always tell people to be very careful from the charity's point of view. When Harry was first diagnosed, I joined a lot of, you know, worldwide Facebook groups for children with the condition. And that's really helpful. But also you have to bear in mind you only, people often post at the worst moment on the worst day at the worst time. And I was personally really terrified when I read some stories from other families thinking, crikey, this is, this is, this is what our life's going to be like. So We've seen both sides of it, I think, with the charity. But in terms of fundraising, it's life-changing for, for organisations. And it does mean that the conditions such as hydrocephalus, which, you know, I, I have to admit, most people don't know about it. I didn't until my own child had it. But it, it's a way to share those stories and get those messages out. And tiny little charities like ours get hurt. Mm-hmm. With the work that you're doing, you mentioned um, the fundraiser of the year. Uh, I I, I don't know what it is. Is that an award? That's an accreditation that you get. You slipped that in earlier in the conversation. How did you get that? And what did you do to get that recognition? That was a few years ago. I've always worked in charities. And the 
Institute of Fundraising is a national chartered body that oversees good fundraising practice in the UK. And I was nominated by my peers. I was working for a women's refuge at the time for the work that I'd done and my voluntary work as well. And I was quite surprised to get it, but it was nice recognition. Where do you get your energy from? Because you do so, you know, you're doing so much stuff. How, how do you refuel and, and you know, power up to, to do what you do? Because I've always worked for charities, it's actually the beneficiaries or the service users of the organisation. So I've worked with women's refugees, the women and the children who've inspired me. I've just finished working after six years at RASAC, which is a rape and sexual abuse support centre. And it's the survivors who bravely come forward for our support are so inspiring. And now it's, it's families affected by hydrocephalus and the children themselves and the battles that they have to overcome mm-hmm. inspire me to do my job. And, and were you a runner? Uh, have you always been a runner? Or was it, is it something you've done when the charity side of things um, became bigger in your life? I think I, I'm always been quite driven <laughs> but. I really believe in in what we're doing. I live it and breathe it on a daily basis. So I can see the difference that we're making, but the more difference we make, the more we've got to do. So I, I'm very passionate about that, I guess. And I've got great family and friends. So, you know, and ultimately when I need a bit of headspace, it's the running that I think is so important. Have you ever considered any sort of parallels between running and business leadership, that, that, that kind of thing, and, and how running might help you be better at, at work? I'm a lapsed runner. <laughs> I, I was a very good runner when I was 50, 14, 15, 16. I ran for my county. I represented areas abroad and things like that in 800 metres and 1,500 metres. I've got a few medals for that. And then life happens, parties happen, growing up happens. And I sort of came back to it in my 30s for a little bit. And then now I'm in my 40s, I've really picked it up again. It's interesting as I've got older, I think with the running, I'm more motivated. So I'm not a naturally good runner, I don't think. Um, And often it's I signed the first couple of miles really tricky and then I get better so it's a psychological battle to keep going and I think that's got parallels in Mm -hmm. leadership it's really interesting to get a a charity perspective on this podcast as well because we have you know people in business mainly people in business that have financial goals and and other objectives that they're trying to reach how do you measure success in in your space in, in the charity space you're in we measure it in terms of feedback from families but also there is a monetary side of it. So we have targets that we need to raise to enable us to do certain bits of work. So I guess a head campaign, for example, we need to raise £50,000 to deliver what we want to deliver. And my next campaign in terms of looking at the patient pathway between a child in suspected chunk failure and when they actually get the medical intervention they need Again, that's targeted. So that's how we do it. That's how we measure success. Are we supporting the amount of people that we say we're going to do? And when we get feedback from them, are we actually making a difference? Mm-hmm. And with, you know, with those goals, is, is it something that is changing all the time? Or how often do you come back to, 
I know we touched upon, you know, the purpose, the why earlier on. Mm. How often do you come back to that? We revisit our goals every year. So we have a strategic plan that we work against. And I would say it's a bit of a controversial opinion in terms of charities. Everyone likes to say they're proactive. I'm quite proud to say I think we're a reactive priority. So we listen to what families say, we find the gap, and then we try to address them. So there are needs out there that I'm not even aware of yet, but families will come to us and they will highlight them. And then if we can, we will try mm-hmm. to plug that gap. Thinking uh, about the the running side and your, your running, you mentioned your training going you know, for the London Landmark Half Marathon coming up. Uh, are you somebody that likes to run more on your own or is the group running something that's important for you? The group running is really important. And if I'm honest as well, and given my background in some of the charities that I work for, I'm, I'm afraid to say I feel uncomfortable running on my own. I would always run with somebody else. It's a real, it's a horrible shame that, isn't it? That that, that situation exists in in the time that we're in. I wish it didn't. Having worked for six years in a rape and sexual abuse support organisation, I think that's made me more aware. I probably know more than most people. And I personally don't like running alone. I like the camaraderie as well of running with other people. I think that spurs me on. I'm probably a bit of a lazy runner. And if there isn't um, someone running along with me, I might stop. Whereas I keep going with other people. But when I'm running organised events, I'm quite competitive and, you know, I will push myself. You obviously were, you know, you said you were, you were really good when you, when you were uh, a, a teenager. So that, that competitive streak is still there in, 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 in coming through in these uh, events that you do. How, how many people will be running later this year for Harry's Hat? We've got a team of 22 in the land and landmarks. And we've also got places in the Royal Parks Half Marathon as well. I think we've got about six running that. And and do you run train with all those people or, or do they come together? Is it the first time when you do the race that you'll all come together at, at the same time? Yeah, there's, there's seven of us running that run regularly together that are running in the London landmarks. There's a corporate team joining us, a couple of families joining us and their friends as well. So it's quite exciting. So it'll be the first time we're all running together. Fantastic. We're all wearing our Harry's Pack t-shirts, running vests. So hopefully that will raise a bit of profile for the charity as well. And are you somebody who likes to run with with music or do you prefer the silence or the the chat with the people that you're running with? Well, my friend that I run with regularly, as I said, is profoundly deaf. So I don't run with music because I would say that she's my eyes because I just got really poor night vision. And I'm her ears. So I think it's, you know, quite important that I'm not running with headphones. And, and how does that practically work when, when you're running, you know, with somebody who, who's deaf? Do you kind of, and I know you sort of, you say that, you know, with a smile about, you know, you, she's your sort of, you know, night vision. But in, you know, in, in all seriousness, how, how do you, you know, what precautions do you have to take? We just take the, the, the standard precautions. We have phones with us, obviously, if we, need, we needed anything. I'm learning sign language, but as I say, I can't do it at the moment. So we've made our own signs, really, so that in our run, the longer run means going over a bridge. So there's a sign for bridge and that sort of thing. And we, 
we've learned sort of our own signs and symbols between us, but I am learning British Sign Language so we can um, communicate more effectively. Running aside, can you uh, name a, an app, a business tool, or even a person, something that you, you couldn't do without in your work for Harry's Hat? I have to say, I think it's social media because certainly for me, we use LinkedIn a lot and that helps me uh, connect with people that I need to connect with. If we've got a particular fundraising event or we've just done this lovely project called Superstar Siblings, where we've sent, we've got people to nominate the siblings of children with hydrocephalus. I thought we might get about 15 nominations. We got 110. So those children are getting a Harry's hat bear and a handwritten card. And that's made such a difference to, to siblings. So they're being recognised for their, their impact. But this project has got bigger than we thought. So we're looking for sponsorship. So obviously we would go out to LinkedIn and say, this is what we're doing. Has, Pete, has anyone got any contact? And so that's really helped. It's interesting. I know we spoke about social media earlier, but the positives that you can take from that um, and I think it's probably something we all need at this this point because there's there's so much negativity out there, isn't it? And there's so much that isn't good about social media. Just to hear stories like that, it gives me a bit of uh, you know, it gives me some sort of you know confidence, some you know, some positivity back as well that it's it is being used in good ways because we don't we don't see this as much. I don't think. Absolutely. If you look on our website. You can see the Harry's Hat logos that we've got. Now, that branding happened because when we first set the charity up, I put out a post on social media saying, this is what we want to do. This is where we're going. We could really do with a little bit of help. And someone we didn't, I've never met before came back to me and said that they'd love to get involved. And they created all of our logos and basically gave us a brand. That's a wonderful story. Um, yeah, that, that's a great takeaway. Uh, business aside, uh, what's your favourite bit of running kit or accessory that you can't do without when you go running? I guess I can't really say brands, but I, we do wear a brand that is really good because it lights us up like Christmas trees. So You can, you can mention a brand, that's fine. Uh, I use the ProVid brand and I think they're brilliant because... I really should, I, I'm always a little bit nervous of running, running at night. And this stuff is amazing. Like if, if a car is coming towards me, they can really see me. I light up like a Christmas tree, but I feel much more comfortable going out running in, in the long sleeve t-shirt from there and, and the, the trousers. What practical advice would you give to anybody listening to this who is um, considering setting up some kind of charity initiative, who wants to fundraise for something uh, there's a cause they've got in mind and they want to take the first steps. What, from your massive experience, would you would you say is the most important thing? Find out what's already out there. Can you add to it? Can you partner with it? And if you feel that you want to go it alone to, to develop, to go away that you, you feel particularly passionate about and make connections, the best thing is connect with people in the sector, there's some brilliant Facebook groups as well, trust fundraising, Facebook groups, small charity Facebook groups. And people on those are professionals who are really keen to share their experience. And they're living and breathing it every day. And that experience is out there for free. People in the sector are, re are usually really kind and, and 
they want you to do well. But it's, what you must have is a really clear mission and value. Why are you doing this? What is the difference you want to make? Because if you can't tell people what the difference is that you want to make, then you can't get your message across. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. If people listening to this want to find out more about Harry's Hat and the work that you're doing, tell us about what they need to do. They can go onto our website, which is www.harrys-hat.org. And from there, that's got the list of all of our social media platforms, everything about us, really. Okay. And we'll add that into the show notes as well, so everybody can access that easily. Um, finally, what advice would you give to anybody who's listening to this in, in business, in a leadership role, and they're considering getting more active and specifically taking up running? Uh, what would you say? I would say do it. Absolutely. But I think I think the advice you get a lot. For people that haven't run before, try the couch to 5k or the park runs. They've been brilliant. I do park run almost every Saturday and I now know the people. I, I feel part of it. And when I haven't felt up to it, you can volunteer there as well. Caroline, best of luck with your half marathon later this year and all the stuff that you're doing with Harry's Hat. It really is fantastic. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much. Thanks to Caroline Coates, today's guest on Run the Business. Caroline is a dynamo. She's so humble and she's bringing so much energy and expertise to Harry's Hat and many other spaces she's worked in over the years. She really is inspiring. I find this connection between running and charity fascinating, maybe because it's such a straightforward, and I'm not saying easy, but it's a tangible way for individuals to make a difference to something that they care about. And I think that's the key. As running enhances our mindfulness, our personal awareness, we become more aware of what's going on around us and we can feel more connected to the world, whether that's people at work or in our private lives. When people choose a charity to run for, it usually has some personal significance, maybe connected to a loved one or the values that you represent. When we have low points or challenges in life, running for a charity can be a way of thanking people or an organization, connecting with a community of people that have been through or are in a similar position. And I guess it can be part of the healing process as well. Caroline's sharing of how she runs with a friend who's profoundly deaf was lovely and it shows how running might help us step into other people's shoes and attempt to understand their challenges through running. And of course, when you do a run where a charity's involved, the support is usually mind-blowingly positive. The energy and support you can get from the crowds en route make a huge difference. And I think there's something enormously special about being part of a big group of people making a difference that enables you to connect in action. And that empathy that you develop by running for a charity, for a cause as part of a community, can only be positive for our self-development and our people skills as well. Good for you if you've got a charity run coming up this year. Let me know about it on Twitter, at Anthony Gay or at Run the Business. And if you're enjoying Run the Business, please spend a moment to write a review wherever you get this podcast. Follow us, share, uh, give us some likes. It all helps get the show to a wider audience and does help us with future guests as well. Thanks to Anna Harding and Chris Kelly for their ongoing brilliance in helping get this podcast out to you. And thank you for listening. I'm Anthony Gay, and until next time, keep running 
and keep chasing your goals.